Come with me. Let's travel back into the time of Ezekiel. Imagine he asked us about the vision he'd seen, a flying machine with a man's face and moving wheels, emblems of power and able to move as it wills in the air. Imagine pulling out your phone and showing Ezekiel a picture of a Lancaster bomber or a helicopter and saying to Ezekiel, Look, is that what you saw in your vision? Instead of shaking his head and saying, No, it was bigger than that, or uh, No, it was a different colour, or It didn't have so many wheels. Imagine if Ezekiel just stared at your phone and asked, What's that? Then you would have a picture of how the purpose of the thing defines the thing. Today we're looking at that statement in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So just in case we miss that sense of being chosen, we read again in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. And in verse 11 again we read, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have to take on this idea of being chosen or being predestined. We can't avoid it. Paul repeats it and he talks about it in Romans. This is what he says in, the mo in that most comforting of passages, Romans chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I don't believe there's anything like the doctrine or the idea of predestination in any other religion. The best we can find is an idea of fate or destiny. It might appear in Islam under the name of things being written or maktub. That's a very misleading comparison to the idea of predestination. The origin of fate uh, is unknown to us, but... The Greeks actually had gods which were known as fates and they decided what was going to happen quite spuriously. But remember that um, Achilles, you know, in the myth is dipped in a pool of immortality by his, his feet and hidden ever afterwards to protect him from his fate, which is that he'll die an early death in battle. But nonetheless, he still meets his death in battle outside Troy. Now, a lot of us are fatalists, and we believe that life is governed by fate. But this will have two terrible effects on us. Firstly, we'll become mistrustful of God the Creator. We'll fear his decisions. We see this in Jonah's complaint against God. In Jonah chapter 4, he effectively says, God... I knew you wouldn't punish the Ninevites, so what's the point? Well, that's a dangerous thought. If we can't trust God who made us, how will we have a true view of our own lives and our own purpose? And our second reaction, if we're fatalists, 
is to become blasé. We say, well, there's nothing to be done here. God's decided, so I might as well do nothing. No witness makes a difference. If I witness to people, it doesn't make a difference. No prayer changes the mind of God. No act reflects his glory. We'll come back to that. But Christians can be fatalists, and that is not an idea that we find in this passage. There's another way of looking at predestination wrongly. It's the idea that we dislike it, and really, what we want is to feel that we get what we deserve. This is a Christian equivalent of karma. What we do is served up to us as a reaction. People who believe that we get what we deserve often reject the notion of predestination because they say, God can't just choose people out of the blue. He must choose us based on our faith or on our good deeds. It's karma, you see. A good deed for a good deed. The idea that God could choose bad people is challenged here. God should only choose those who choose him. Otherwise, there's an unfairness about everything. And people who reject predestination are in danger of rejecting God. They're effectively judging God's actions. They're claiming to know better. And there is a danger in this. You know, Job questions God. And the Lord answers him in quite a harsh way. Job, he says, where were you when I was creating the world? God's anger is seen in this, but also his mercy. Job questions God, but God is prepared to be questioned and to give an answer. Having said that, are you the person to take on the God who made the great creatures of the earth, who rules with justice? We should tread carefully, shouldn't we? Working out our salvation in fear and trembling. But if we really look at what Paul's saying, remembering that he is making the point over and over so he is not to be misunderstood, he means that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we are predestined. If we look at what he's really saying, we'll see that he has two important themes. The first is this, that God chooses out of his grace. And secondly, God chooses for a purpose. Let's go back to Paul's purpose in writing to the Ephesian church. Remember, the church in Ephesus is about 10 years old. Now, the people there have survived, they've grown, the church is actually stronger without Paul than it was when he left. But Paul seems to have a message for them in two parts. In the letter to Ephesians, first, you heavenly people, so get to understand this. Second, you're here on earth, so live right. Live properly, as heavenly people should. Now, before we go further... I'd like to remind you that there are no surprises with God. People who struggle with predestination also struggle with God being outside of time. We're told that God foreknew us in Romans and that he knitted us together in our mother's womb in Psalm 139. We have to accept. It's not God who will 
recognise us at the final day, but we'll recognise him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He instigates and he completes his work. So, if God exists outside of time, the idea that he knows those who are his is really not a problem. Paul says, you Ephesian believers are chosen. You're predestined, says Paul, to the praise of God's glorious grace and out of the riches of his grace. How dangerous it would be for Christians to accept that they're heavenly, that they're chosen by God, but without a sense of his goodness and grace. Grace, remember, is undeserved. There's an old-fashioned expression used in the church that we, believers, are trophies of grace. I take this to mean that we were lost and hopeless, but in grace God accepted us and forgave us. He's proud to display his work in us like, like trophies in a cabinet. Grace is seen in the spiritual blessings of verse 3 and in the redemption through his blood in verse 7. The story of grace is the story of our world. God made it good, we broke it, but he sent Jesus to die to bring forgiveness, undeserved and glorious only to God himself, lest we be given some credit for being good enough to love Predestination is about God's love then. It's not about punishment. It's not about rejection. It's seen in the expression that in love he in love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. This is so clear. God having known us without him before we know him plans to take us on as his own children. I've known several people who have adopted children. Now this is a big commitment. The child is chosen on the basis of their need of adoption, not on their merit. At adoption, the surname is changed. All parenting responsibility is bestowed on the adoptive parent. Whether or not the child is told that they're adopted, the adoptive parent has to take the role of actual parent. This is the sense in which God adopts us. It's wonderful, isn't it? He foreknew us and he chose us to be his. I think it's interesting to read someone like Nicky Campbell uh, talking about the death of his adoptive mother with warmth and sadness. It doesn't always happen, though, that the child feels that gratitude, but... In God's plan, he chooses us out of love and he can be loved in return. In fact, in so many ways the adoptive parent takes that risk that after 18 years the child is allowed to seek out their birth parent and there is a risk of rejection. And this is within God's calculation. He doesn't choose us to be robotic and good, but he chooses us to grow into him and to love him with thankful hearts. Well, I hope we've established that God chooses or predestined us based on grace and out of love. 
for his glory. But unto the second idea, we're predestined or chosen for a purpose. Remember Ezekiel's phone. Until he knows that photography is a way to represent memory and a phone is a way to do photography and to store it, the pictures of aircraft mean nothing to him. In the same way, Paul wants the Ephesians to engage with their purpose. They've been chosen, yes, but with a reason. Paul is going to drive this home. First, we're to be holy. We are chosen to be holy. I'm greatly helped by a picture of what it is to be holy, which is provided in the book of Leviticus. In that book, the priest is given all of his instructions. The priest is to be holy. He's to wash. He's to wear clean clothes, including his underwear. They have to be clean. It recognises the need to be clean. Paul says you are chosen to be cleansed. In verse 7, you have redemption through his blood. This refers to the next thing about the priest. He's to be involved in the sacrifice of animals for the forgiveness of sin. So, to be holy is to understand the importance of cleanliness or of cleaning, but also the importance now of that one sacrifice for all that Jesus has made. Obviously not to continue in blood sacrifices, thank God. The priest also wore a turban, a head covering, in respect to God. Now, because God's blessings are lavished on us, verse 8, and we're dealt with in all wisdom and insight, and we have an idea of the mystery of his will, the head covering also symbolically protects that which God has bestowed on us. Well, look further at the priest. He, he wears 12 precious stones. The 12 tribes are represented there. They're also a reminder of the inheritance of verse 14 that's shared with so many others. We may be chosen, but so are others. We're not alone in being holy to God. In fact, Peter calls us living stones built together into a holy temple. And the priest also wears an emblem saying, holy to the Lord. And in this, there is the praise of God's glory. That phrase that's repeated so many times in the passage or to the praise of God's grace. Holy to the Lord. So we are chosen to be holy. We're to be like the priest, set apart for God, sold out for him. We are to be a hundred percenters. We're to be truly committed. We are to remember him in our comings and goings, in our eating and our fasting, in our triumphs and our tragedies. Everybody looking at the priest would recognise the royalty of his garments and the meaning in everything that he did. I'd like to say that's a good picture of what it is to be holy, and God is glorified in this. So those of us who have a lazy picture of predestination say, I'll never be holy. God didn't choose me when I was holy, so I'm just claiming my rights and living in them. Well, woe to that person, says our Lord, because he won't be found ready at the final day. We're predestined by grace for holiness, says Paul. Don't forget there's purpose 
in this choosing that we become holy. Secondly, we're chosen to be blameless. The Bible has three senses of what it is to be blameless. This, the blamelessness that God himself has in that he's done all that's necessary for humankind. He can't be accused of wrongdoing. God chose us before the foundation of the world to be blameless in this way, because we're his. In another way, we think about blamelessness as being something that God requires in us. We read that Job was a blameless man, that he was blameless in his conduct towards God. Noah also is described as blameless. The psalmist in different places calls on God to view his conduct as blameless. And Samson, in his dying act, turns back to God with repentance and asks that he be found blameless. In the Philippians, book of Philippians, it's clear that God has sent Jesus to die so that we might be blameless, washed clean of sin. So blamelessness in our actions towards God. And thirdly, this will be developed much more in the letter to Ephesians, there is to be blameless conduct to our fellow person, both believer and unbeliever. Remember that Paul was run out, for, run out of Ephesus for doing what God wanted him to do. He doesn't apologise for ruining the business of the Artemis Souvenir Corporation, but he does counsel that believers shouldn't be doing things that would bring them into the public eye for the wrong reasons. Jesus calls this being innocent as doves. Paul also means that the Ephesians should be blameless to one another, to avoid the trap of making your brother or sister into an enemy so that they could accuse one another with, she did this or he said that. The more that we look at this business of predestination, the less we can fill ourselves with pride. We are to be holy. That's humbling ourselves so that everything about us is for the glory of God and we are to be blameless. That's to walk a life that is extremely careful, generous, not trying to make an unpleasant odour in front of other Christians or our neighbours or God himself. Now how practical these words of Paul are, we'll see at another stage. And the book of Ephesians is incredibly spiritual and incredibly practical. But I'd like to come back to our definition of being chosen or predestined. I'd like to say this, that Paul is emphasising in no uncertain terms that believers, church members, Christians, are firstly set apart by God, for God, by his grace, and nothing they deserve, and because they belong to this heavenly family, their conduct and attitude needs to be exceptional. Now, there's one more puzzle left to deal with in this first chapter. How? How will the Ephesian Christians match up to this heavenly calling? How will you and I match up to this heavenly calling? Well, We've already acknowledged that there is redemption, the washing away of our sin by the blood of Christ. But now we also learn that God has left the Ephesians with the one divine way to truly live as heavenly people. And that divine way has a name. The name is the Holy Spirit. Paul recognises that the Holy Spirit 
will take the promise of being chosen for holiness and blamelessness, he'll take that promise and he will make it practically possible because there is a seal and a down payment. That's the language that he uses. There is a deposit given to each true believer and he is God's Holy Spirit. Imagine the seal. The seal prevents things getting in. It prevents water from getting in or it prevents spying eyes from looking in from the outside. That's the seal of the Holy Spirit. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are the sheep who hear the good shepherd's voice, who bear his branding. So we're marked out as God's by the Holy Spirit, sealed in that way. What this means is that the accuser can point a finger at us and accuse us of fault, but God's reply is always, but they are mine, adopted, justified, filled. Because we're God's letter, we bear the heavenly frank of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And we also have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. When you begin with a mortgage, you don't say after a month, Ah, oh, I own one two hundred and fortieth of this house, because it won't be mine until twenty years' time. No, you say, this is my house, I've put down a down payment, a deposit, and the bank has recognised that I own the deed as long as I keep paying. Now that's what the Holy Spirit is to us, a down payment guaranteeing that he'll see us through to the end. So hallelujah. When the down payment is made, the bank transfers the total funds to the seller. We're bought, we're paid for, the scores are settled, and here is the Holy Spirit to drive us to be the people of purpose for whom God has paid the whole sum. Do you believe that? May God awaken that belief in you. And may that be a motivation. So, in finishing, let me ask you as I ask myself, are you certain of God's choice today? Is it you? And what are you for? Are you for holiness and blamelessness? Then celebrate with thanksgiving, but also ask with me for a further helping of God's Holy Spirit as we negotiate being heavenly people in an earthly family. Lord, Lift our eyes to see that you have chosen us to be adopted by grace. Fill us, O oh God, with your Holy Spirit, that we may look ahead with confidence and joy, and this to your everlasting glory. Amen. <laughs>